Before we get started in this episode, a quick announcement. As you know, I'm very passionate about acceptance and commitment therapy, and I also run a busy practice in Canberra. We're currently looking for psychologists who are registered in Australia to join our team, who are also passionate about learning about ACT. We provide supervision on a group and individual basis and training around ACT. So if this is you, if you're interested, please express your interest at strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers. Look forward to hearing from you. And now back to this episode. Okay, life can be crazy. You're feeling like you're sinking. Just trying to find a meaning. It's time for better thinking. Yeah, better thinking. Time to tune in. Let's go. Welcome back to Better Thinking. My name is Nesh Nikolic and today's guest is clinical psychologist Joe Coyne. He is both lecturer and course coordinator for the master's program at QUT and he's here to talk to us about attachment theory, the circle of security course and also the different attachment styles being secure, anxious, avoidant and disorganized. Joe has got a wealth of experience and I think is quite elegant in the way that he describes these different styles of relating to one another, obviously between parent and child, but I think there's some greater implications for adults to consider their own attachment styles and how they interact with others and maybe the misunderstandings, misinformation or misinterpretations of the world that come from growing up with learning different ways of relating. Hopefully all of that will be much clearer after this episode. So without further ado, I give you Joe Coyne to speak about this over the next hour and a half. It's a fantastic talk, so enjoy. Joe, a big thank you for coming onto the show today. No problems at all, Nash. Tell me a little bit about your work, where you come from, and, and how you've fallen into, in, in, into being a clean psych and obviously now a uh, now program coordinator of uh, QUT. Yeah, so I coordinate, uh, I think, as, as we kind of got into just before, uh, the two master's programs at QUT. So I coordinate both the educational and developmental psych master's program uh, and also the clinical psychology program. So um, kind of, and, and I guess my mission there, if you like, um, is to try and bring an applied developmental science approach to that. Um, my kind of origins go way back to, to 95. It's a little bit scary to kind of, um, you know, as you reflect back and you kind of started saying, you know, we want to talk about where people have kind of got to in, in a lifetime, um, of their, of their practice. I hope, I hope I'm not finished yet. I don't feel that old, but, um, but it is kind of a bit disturbing sometimes to think it's over 25 years since I started my own master's training, uh, back in 95, um, and it was very good training at Griffith university. Um, and at that time, the, the model there was to provide a very integrative program of training. So exposing us to CBT, uh, family therapy and a psychodynamic approach to things. So I really, really enjoyed that training and really valued it. Uh, and left from there to go and work in, in an NGO. Um, and I was actually lucky to start working there about halfway through my master's. Uh, and that NGO's brief was to do um, child and family work with families, really where, where I guess trauma was an issue. So we saw families who were caught up in the, in the Queensland child protection system um, and, and really quite a holistic approach to that. I, it was a, it was a, it was a, 
interesting agency at that time. It still exists. It's changed a little bit its kind of service model. Um, but back then, we really had a pretty open remit about how we worked with families. So we could see kids, we could see foster parents, and we could see biological family members to, to support things like reunification or reducing the risk that, that children were exposed to. Uh, and we also saw families where domestic violence was an issue uh, and, again, had quite a broad remit to work with the, with the family system. Uh, and the agency was very well known um, back in the, in the late 80s, 90s for, for work, particularly around children who witnessed DV and had been a very strong advocate for recognising just the witnessing of violence was in itself traumatic and, and actually a, a form of abuse. Uh, and we also then, the third group of clients, I guess, were kids who had been exposed to extrafamilials sexual abuse. So that wasn't from a family member, but, but might have been part of you know, pedophilia or, or kind of other forms of assault around that. Uh, and when I started there, I, I guess the, the two big things I found that were kind of not um, on board from my clinical training was trauma um, from a developmental perspective. Um, so it had been a pretty good program for showing us um, you know, PTSD as per the DSM-4 at the time, uh, but that understanding was really very focal around um, combat trauma and um, trauma from adult assaults, traffic injuries, rape, that kind of thing. So this exposure to, to trauma in children and then um, what I became very aware of was that a lot of the adults and parents who I was seeing um, in supporting the families and kids, um, their trauma histories were, were significant as well. And so my understanding of personality disorder really shifted at that time to seeing most personality kind of issues as being very traumatic, traumatogenic in terms of their, their origins. Uh, that really led me then to really thinking quite a lot about attachment theory, which again was a pretty big gap in, in my own training and clinical training. And so I kind of was on a bit of a mission from there to, to really teach myself um, a lot about attachment theory. Um, my primary framework at that time uh, had been, was to work in a really behavioral family systems fashion with, with families um, around parenting, kind of the standard parent training sort of model. And I'd been really lucky to have Mark Dads as one of my teachers. Um, and, you know, he had a very sophisticated way of thinking about behavioral family work, um, was, had a really strong family systems kind of basis to it. So it was probably the best grounding, I think, in behavioral work that I could have had for working with that population. And around that same time, my kind of interest in to try and understand some of this phenomena was really directed into psychodynamic object relations theory. So I started kind of doing a bit of training in that area um, and actually went into probably about six years of supervision with a, with a really good object relations therapist, a guy called Paul Terry, who'd come back from, from England uh, around that time. And so I was kind of doing this odd mix where I was working with adults and seeing them, um, you know, through this lens of object relations, sort of um, psychodynamic psychotherapy, and then working with families around how to structure and manage kind of behavioral issues through this kind of behavioral parent training or behavioral family systems sort of approach. Um, and on the side, kind of learning attachment, which, which didn't really kind of have a super home in, in, in either of those, those places. Though interestingly, Mark went on to, to then work with, you know, develop a, a very powerful research program around callous and emotional kids, where he integrated a lot of ideas around attachment theory into, into that program. Um, so so just, kind of, for our, just for our listeners, listeners who aren't familiar with attachment theory, can you go into a little bit of that, just some of the, the, the basics yeah, for, yeah. for some of those listeners? 
Yeah. So um, obviously attachment theory uh, is the idea of that we get attached to people um, and that that attachment uh, forms very early in development. And um, the significance of it, I guess, as a lifespan developmental theory is that early attachments, um, you know, form a template for how we then start to organize ourselves around um, relationships into the future. So John Bowlby was the, the kind of, you know, founder in, in many ways of attachment theory and certainly the recognized kind of founder of the, the main body of what we call attachment theory. And he noticed um, that, that children were disrupted by separations from their caregivers. And you know, trying, to, trying to cut a long story short here, uh, sort of you sort of drew on ideas from, uh, he was a trained psychoanalyst, but he started to draw on ideas from ethology. So the work of Conrad Lorenz and anyone who's done undergrad psych or you know, perhaps seen any documentaries about psychology has probably seen the pictures of the ducks following Conrad Lorenz around and his idea of imprinting. So ideas like that struck Bowlby as being very important. And he thought, given um, something that Freud had, had made a lot of in, in, in human psychology, which was that we are highly dependent on caregivers for a very long time in, in our development, and that this was significant for, for, our, for our psychology and our psychological development. Bowlby kind of drew the link then of that to evolution and said that it made sense for us to want to stay in proximity and to stay close to our caregivers uh, because we were so helpless and dependent and that our survival depended on somebody looking after us. And so the idea of an attachment bond within that evolutionary component of the theory is it's the thing that keeps us safe by staying in proximity to a caregiver. Now, there's obviously a lot more to attachment theory than that because we um, are, are highly complex, particularly in our social um, development. Um, but within that social development, one of the things that we have to become able to do is manage our impulses, affects, our emotional states, coordinate our social behavior with other people. And so modern attachment theory really focuses on that this bond gives us this kind of almost a laboratory with our caregiver, where we're able to unpack and kind of organize our, our sense of ourselves and our identity, but also to understand the mind and, and behaviors of other people notably first off our caregiver. And so this uh, secure attachment gives you this very rich, well-coordinated context in which you can figure out who I am, how I behave, what works in terms of organizing my feelings in a relationship with another person, and how do other people work? Can you trust them? Are they reliable? Are they consistent? Are they responsive? And so if we have a, if we're lucky enough to have a secure model, when we, when we go forward into the world, we tend to be more open to other people and their influence. We tend to be better able to coordinate ourselves, our emotions, our behaviors um, in, in a socially appropriate way with other people and to elicit back, I guess, more, more socially responsive or socially appropriate kind of behaviors from other people. Um, then insecure attachment is where we're limited in, in that for, for various reasons. And we, we may go on and talk about you know, some of those things in, in the course of our conversation. And of course, for trauma, it, the, the area that became you know, very relevant um, in, from the 80s on was the whole area of disorganized attachment which is where our caregiver is kind of like the opposite of a secure figure, where we, we find them very inconsistent, perhaps frightening um, in their behavior towards us, or they may even be frightened of us. And that's one of the descriptions that uh, a person called Carlin Lyons Ruth makes, that a, that a caregiver in a disorganized relationship is either frightening or frightened in relation to the child. And so either way, we, we are kind of overwhelmed by, by the, the, the nature of the relationship with the parent. And it leaves us with this kind of load of anxiety that we can't manage. And that's the, the, the kind of core, I think, of disorganization.
No, a lot of this is quite commonly discussed in the space of trauma and, and mm. how that sort of plays out. Can you sort of make that connection for our listeners as well, how trauma plays in? I know that psychologists often will, uh, you know, talk talk about this, but sometimes, you know, we even uh, uh, clumsily do so and, and we might sort of take some heuristics and shortcuts in in, in making these, the, the, these quick judgments rather than, you know, unpacking it you know, in, in, in a conversation like this. Yeah. Well, and that's and it's a really good point, um, Nesh. And uh, before we get too far, I'll, I'll kind of point out a really common shortcutting that, that psychologists do, where we're shocking abbreviators of concepts, which I think when, when we communicate things, you know, if we forget to to clarify that can, can lead to some miscommunications. So one of the things, um, particularly out in the everyday world where, where lay people like, you know, are, are interacting with attachment, if you like, um, we, we often hear this idea of like the child being attached in a particular way. And, and we need to remember that that's a contraction, that the actual original terminology of attachment is that a child is attached to this particular caregiver. So uh, at QUT, we, we run a program called Circle Security, and I'm sure I'll talk more about that because it's become a, a huge kind of um, pillar of, of what I do these days. Or, and so, but as part of that, we, we regularly run strange situations, which are the formal way of assessing or, or looking at what's going on between in a relationship between a parent and a child. And so when we're doing that, it's the most kind of clear way of saying that we're actually thinking very much about the attachment of that child to that parent. We, and so it's very specific to a relationship. So children aren't securely attached. Relationships are, are securely attached. So it's always a very dyadic understanding when we talk about attachment. And so it's quite common to hear people, you know, kind of in early childhood or other places talking about like a securely attached child. But it's a bit of a misnomer because what we're really meaning there is that child in the context of a particular relationship is, is securely attached. Um, and so this would be and, the same. And that's important yeah. because often we discuss that with regards to the primary caregiver because they exactly, are the person yeah. who spends the most time. Having said that, it might be a quite insecure attachment or disorganized attachment with the primary caregiver, but might be in actual fact quite secure and, 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 and uh, adaptively attached to, let's say, for example, a um, childcare worker who is able to meet the child's needs appropriately. And so um, their, their uh, presentation might be different in those two contexts. But, you know, obviously psychologists tend to spend the most time on those primary ones because that's where the time and energy is spent and that's where that template is most likely to be um, forged. Yeah, absolutely. And and it's, a, it's, it's, it's important for all kinds of reasons. Um, and you know, perhaps thinking particularly clinically um, and therapeutically for really understanding that that idea of like that relationships can be reparative at, at any stage in our development. The fact that we form our, our attachment bond based on the characteristics of a particular relationship, not something that's innate in, in us or, or disrupted in us, I think is a really hopeful thing that, that comes out of attachment theory. Um, and that's why in, in research, we, we talk about the idea that attachments are kind of independent. So uh, my attachment to my mother and my attachment to my father don't necessarily have to bear any relationship to each other. They're highly kind of consistent with how each of those people has responded to my needs um, uh, over time. 
the the as you say, like the kind of idea we focus on the primary relationship, um, and you know, one of the million dollar questions that I'd love anyone to to give me an answer to uh, is how all of our multiple attachments over life, you know, kind of come together to to be our kind of you know template in in adulthood, and you know, the the kind of contours of that uh, are kind of an endlessly fascinating thing to to sort of think about. Um, but the power we think of that primary attachment figure or those early relationships is, is almost that they set us up for, um, you know, um, and Bowlby kind of talked about it in this way, a sort of biased information processing. So if I have a secure, as I said earlier, if I have a secure attachment, I kind of expect relationships to generally be pretty responsive to me and, and good for meeting my needs. Um, and what we think then happens is that when I go out into the world, when I go to school, when I interact with other people, I behave in that way. And because if I've had good regulation, good coordination of my emotions, I tend to be pretty, again, well-regulated, able to kind of respond pro-socially. So people respond back to me in, in a, generally in a positive way. Um, and we kind of have some good data on this in that kids who start school who have secure attachments tend to be rated as more liked by, by teachers, tend to be seen as having less behavior problems, being more pro-social, um, warmer in their interactions with adults. And obviously all of that gives you a good start as you go in, into schooling. And many decades ago, a guy called Arnold Samaroff kind of talked about this, this idea of if you get a good start in your first year of life, it tends to set you up for a good start in the second year and so on and so on. And similarly, if you have a poor start, then it kind of can, can snowball. And so one of the issues around trauma uh, in terms of attachment is that it can create that opposite expectation, that you expect that other people can in fact be quite dangerous in terms of how they feel towards you, uh, in terms of the amount of anxiety that they generate. Sometimes it's actually is physical danger or, or harm that's been caused to you. And the huge dilemma that we have, and I often describe this when I teach this with, with students or in, in kind of professional trainings, um, you know, if I'm two, you know, I can't, you know, really kind of sit down with my parents and say, you know, this isn't working out. You know, I feel like you guys are kind of really not getting this parenting thing. You're kind of a bit scary. I'm going up the road to the Browns. They look like they've got it together. I think I'll chill out with them. You know, we, we have to dance with the one that brought us. Um, which is which is both the power and the dilemma of attachment in, in a way. So if my caregivers are suboptimal in their care and and you know um, and traumatizing, I guess in their behavior, uh, I don't have a choice. I have to figure out some way of making this work. And so when we talk about disorganized or traumatic attachments, what we're really talking about is the child's compromise that they have made to make a bond. With, with, with a relationship that, that in fact is, is quite problematic in, in, its, in its kind of um, way, it, way it organizes our experience, if you like. And this is why then, if we think about that attachment creates a template, these the idea of internal working models, that if I have that disrupted kind of confused template and either I'm taken perhaps into foster care or when I go to school, that's what I'm using to try and understand the behavior of other people. And so I'm likely to make these, these misrecognitions of other people's intentions, misunderstandings of behavior. And we all respond to, to what we perceive and how we organize that. And so if I perceive that our adults are perhaps threatening or frightening, then I, and I'm anxious and I don't have good coordination of my, my behavior, then when my teacher raises their voice in class, 
I, I might decide that that's a threat and become agitated and become aggressive or withdrawn, dissociate perhaps. And, and so because my template says nothing good comes of this. And the, I suppose to give the polar opposite might be if someone has practiced and, and observed modeling of uh, greater regulation where maybe a primary caregiver has raised their voice, but it's done so with an appropriate level, with an appropriate tone, with the appropriate timing and the appropriate context. Yeah. The raising of, let's say, for example, the teacher's voice might um, be therefore interpreted in the way that potentially was intended by the teacher, which is to kind of show disapproval, uh, mm. but it doesn't go out and um, damage that relationship and, and says, I still care for you and I still like you. Uh, uh, yeah. However, there's a boundary here that hasn't been met. This isn't socially appropriate. Please reflect on your behaviour and, and, and improve on that. And let's continue on with the rest of the class. Um, Absolutely. Um, and the, one of the key concepts we talk about, you know, um, is, is this idea of rupture and repair. And so one of the things that secure caregivers do very well is, is that when there is a rupture in the relationship, either um, you know, because the child uh, needs correction, because we need the parent to step in and take charge and set some limits, um, or because the parents kind of had, a, had an off day, right? Like we all do as parents. Um, and, but the, 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 the caregiver is able to repair the relationship for the child. Um, and the experience of this is that good follows bad. So if you have a, a, an upset in a relationship, what the child learns is this isn't a big deal. Like it's not great, but people will make it right. Our basic foundational connection will be reestablished, will become kind of reconnected and, and everything will be sort of okay. Disorganized kids almost learn the opposite, right? They learn that bad follows bad and, and that bad can follow good. So you can actually be having a good day, but because people's behavior is unpredictable, maybe because you know, uh, of their, their own internal states and that they can get a bit wobbly. So things can go off track for, for reasons you, you don't really understand. So you develop this kind of you know, vigilance. And, and recently in the attachment literature, this has been talked about as epistemic trust, that, that you can't, you, you basically lose this foundational basic trust in, in being able to know the world. That, that you can actually have accurate knowledge of yourself and other people because it's, all, it's kind of built on shifting sands. Does that sort of make sense? So you're quite right. Like In some sense, yep. sorry to jump in, Joe. In some sense, no, does no. it mean that the way that that child knows the world is that it is an insecure one, that it is um, yeah. the potential for danger is always around. That, and, and that's the... The, um, the knowing, that's the belief, that's, that's in many ways been actually the experience. Um, you know, we do, just don't know what, that could, what could tip over that person mm. so that they become hostile or, or not meet my needs. Absolutely. And so we, we kind of then develop this vigilance. And the greater that vigilance is to the environment um, and to the, the behavior of other people around us, the, the more it kind of impacts our broader development. And, and again, attachments are a kind of theory of, you know, um, you know kind, of, kind of layering down like, like, you know, like by grain by grain in a way, like, you know, um, because it's not, and this is really important, particularly if we have, if you have parents who might listen to this, who, who are coming to a, this is a new understanding of attachment or a new, like the first time to the topic, because I'd always kind of give this caveat, 
you, if you, if you have one bad day as a parent, you're not going to make your kid disorganized or insecure or any yeah. of those things, right? Because th- these are, what we're really talking about is the thousands and thousands of interactions that occur day by day across, across development. Now, yes, certain experiences like, you know, that, that, you know, that we call trauma can have an inordinate effect as single events, but most of attachment is, is a science of, you know, multiple events over, over significant periods of time. Um, and so, you know, kind of singular experiences aren't going to kind of create that. But for the same reason, then, um, you know, small variations that remain constant can actually have quite significant effects across a long period of time within our development. Uh, and Bowlby called this kind of defensive exclusion. If, if I've learned that certain experiences are threatening, I try and avoid those in my information processing of the world. And We'll probably talk about this in terms of insecurity, I'm sure, a bit a bit later. But in, in some attachment research, one thing is that if I'm anxious about connection to my caregivers, then a lot of my attention and focus goes into monitoring relationships and because I need that proximity. Remember, I need to be close and feel like I've got someone to turn to. So I have to manage that relationship. That's the, that's the complication. And if I'm secure that's pretty easy. Like I ask myself the question, are you available? Are you reliable? If I need you, will you be there? And for secure children, they go, yes, that's a pretty straightforward answer. And what that means is they're able to orient their attention out to the world, what Bowlby called the exploratory system, because they're not anxious about their attachment figure. And they spend, interestingly, like with an attachment, secure children, interestingly, spend more time away from their caregiver, directed away because they're free to explore the world, to develop their autonomy, mastery, and competence out there. Um, And when they need to, they know that they can return. So because they're not doing this juggling of anxiety about caregiver availability, they're quite free to to go out and and kind of engage with and and, um, develop their their own power, if you like, within the world. Um, Anxiously attached children or insecurely attached children have to spend some time monitoring what, how they need to be to keep their caregiver available, which puts some limits on, on how you can, can explore the world. Disorganized children, if you like, feel unmoored. They don't feel like they have a reliable connection. So they spend a lot of time managing both their own anxiety and, and what's going on with caregivers or other people, which really then limits your ability to focus on um, the, the outside world, develop your competence, you know, to explore, um, you know, the, the bigger the bigger environment. Again, you know, a, a good example of this is, you know, if you've ever been really stirred up yourself or kind of anxious and then had to sit down and read, you know, uh, like a textbook or something hard, um, you know, that feeling of like, I've just been sitting here, but my mind has been like a million miles away and now I've got to go back and start you know, from the top of the page because none of this has gone in. That's kind of like a, like a disorganized child's day in, day out life in processing the social world. One thing that jumped out at me as well, Joe, while you were talking is that if a child is spending additional time monitoring not only their own feelings but that of, the, mm. of their uh, primary attachment, the more that we monitor, the more likely we are to see misinterpretations and and absolutely and, and then yeah. we've got this cyclic sort of uh, uh pattern going on where um it's almost like when someone's gets a little bit obsessed with their 
weights, for example, and they're, they're, they're jumping on the scales two, three, four times yeah. a day. They, it all yeah, just you blows see the variations. proportion. They start looking at their arm and going, gosh, has it, has it become bigger since my last meal? And, and we just get these misunderstandings, you know, is that person who's looking at me, are they noticing my, my, you know, my legs are bigger or whatever it might be yeah. in, in the same way that what, what, what a child might be looking at their, at their parent, their caregiver, and, and kind of asking all these complex, hard questions uh, more frequently rather than, as you said, the, the, um, the attached or, or the secure attachment says, is my caregiver available? And, uh, you know, am I safe? Will they meet my needs yep. when, I, when I need them to? And I don't right now. Yes, yes, yes. Off to explore. I can, I can go yeah. out and figure out the world. I can, you know, see if I can jump, you know, further and, and, and higher and, and run faster. And I know, and whenever I need to, I might turn around and say, Hey, mom, watch this. Dad, check this out. And, and, you know, great handstand, sweetheart. You know, well done. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. We say in the, in the circle security work, right, that, um, that security is a straight line, that there's no ambiguity. When I need something, I just turn to you and I come to you directly and I, and I expect a similarly straight line response back. Um, whereas insecurity, we, we might have to take a bit of a bit of a route to, to get there. But insecurity is important to distinguish from disorganization because we still have a strategy. So in, in, in the two forms of insecure attachment that Ainsworth and Bowlby kind of you know, uh, outlined, we still know a way of keeping relationship going with, with our caregiver. Whereas in disorganization, it's it's a bit more like what when you see like a three-year-old, you know, with a pen, they do the squiggles, sometimes on your leather couch, as we had it when our kids were that age. Um, you know, that it's it's kind of like it's hard to know where the beginning and the end is. And so the the real original meaning of the term disorganized when they started using it was that the child had no organized way of having connection with the caregiver. So insecure, whether it was avoidant or ambivalent, there was a way of having connection. It just wasn't as, as modulated as the secure form of, of attachment was. But the kids that they thought of as disorganized either had, they, they changed strategies depending on, on, on in, the, in the strange situation, whether it was the first reunion or the second reunion, or they, they did odd things. They just didn't seem like they knew reliably how to establish connection and relationship with their caregiver. Can you talk about some of those studies or, or how we uh, recognize the difference? Obviously, we've covered, you know, secure. Yeah. Can you talk a little bit more detail around, you know, what, what insecure might look like and what disorganized yeah. might look like? So we t- we, I kind of have these archetypal images. So the original work was, was done by Ainsworth, who, who had been very interested in development and particularly the, the, the kind of regulation of emotion and social behavior before she, she went to England and, and spent some time with John Bowlby, about three and a half years working with him and, and you know, together really developing these ideas. And then famously, she went to Uganda and did naturalistic observations of, of Ganda mothers with, with their babies and really kind of um, formalized and delineated the behaviors of, of secure attachment and, and, and avoidant attachment. She also saw infants who spent a lot of time uh, in cribs um, who didn't seem to be uh, as responsive when their caregiver came or went from, from out of the room. So, so even in, in, in Africa at that time, so this is in the, in the, in the 60s or six, late 60s, I guess. Then she went back to the US and replicated that those field observations in, in Boston in another kind of famous home observation study. Um, and the, the, the kind of story I've been told is that, that a colleague had said to her, 
you know, this is great. It's really interesting. But at the time she was spending 40 to 60 hours of, of field observations to classify attachment. Um, and they said to her, this is no way to have a career, right? No one is going to do this in developmental psychology. Um, you, you need a lab process. And so the, the story goes, and it could be apocryphal, but, but what I've been told is that they figured out how to do the strange situation in a 30-minute in a car commute um, to, to, as, as a lab test. And it's, uh, since, since the 70s, it's really stood the test of time as the gold standard for how, how to assess attachment behavior in children. Um, and so the strange situation is a parent and child obviously come into a strange room that's unfamiliar to, to particularly the child. Um, and then they're invited to play with a, a box of toys for the first three minutes, which really just establishes a baseline for the relationship. So you can see, you know, um, under those conditions where it's just no pressure, parent and child exploring, you know, new, new fun toys, how do they look together? And then a stranger enters the room after three minutes, um, and I'm giving you the, the I'll give the timings for the, the most sure. common form. Um, and the the idea then is to see how the how the how the, the the dyad kind of adapts around having a strange adult in the room. And again, uh, it's an adult that's it's completely unfamiliar, ideally to, like to the child and, and ideally to the parent as well. Uh, and then after another three minutes, the parent is asked to leave. So to, then that's called the first separation. And they leave the room for, for up to three minutes. Um, we say up to because if a child gets really distressed, we obviously don't need that. We, we send the caregiver back in. Um, and then the, when the parent returns, the stranger leaves um, and we call that the first reunion. The parent stays for three minutes and then they're asked to leave the child again, now on their own in the room for three minutes. Uh, and again, if the child becomes too distressed, we terminate, send the caregiver back in. Um, then uh, after three minutes of the child in the room on their own, the stranger returns. Um, and this is for us because we, we use the strange situation in a very clinical way, which I'm sure we'll get to later. Um, we're, we're often very interested here because the child, obviously, when the door opens, is expecting to see the parent. Um, and so there's often this moment of like, oh, <laughs> it's you. <laughs> um, so it's a tough gig to be a stranger. Um, so then the stranger is in the room for three minutes uh, with the child. And, and then there's uh, the second reunion where the caregiver returns. Uh, and the stranger leaves. And in the in the standard laboratory strange situation, that's the procedure. We do it a little differently um, when we're doing it for the circle security protocol because we add two other components and, and I'll kind of talk about those later, um, I'm sure as, as well. Um, so there's kind of like, like three archetypal kind of images we have. And if we think about like kind of kids around 12 months to 18 months, in secure relationships, when the caregiver comes back in, they kind of lift up their arms and go, pick me up. And the, the caregiver picks, picks them up and they settle really quickly. So one of the key things in the strange situation is we, we don't really care how distressed the kiddo gets at separation. Um, you know, separation protests and distress is kind of normal, particularly the younger the child, um, as is being able to cope with it a bit better as we, as we get older as well. What we're really interested in is when the caregiver reunites with the child how able the child is to immediately kind of signal that they're, you know, that they are, that they're keen that the pet caregiver is back. And when the caregiver responds, that the child settles and returns to, to exploration. And that's one of the key things is that once the child and the caregiver are back together and the child settles, has their feelings organized, that they orient that, that orientation back 
to the outside world occurs. And that's the, the typical secure pattern, that we see this regulation of feelings in proximity and a return to an, to an ability to explore the outside world. The archetypal kind of image for the avoidant child is when the caregiver comes back in, they kind of often might turn their back or kind of, you know, kind of look away and kind of play it cool. It's sort of like acting like I don't need you. Um, and when they do invite a relationship, it's, it's usually through, through toys. So the caregiver might, might cues and the common thing we see is, hey, what have you been doing? What do you got there? And the child will go, I'm playing with the puzzle or whatever. And they will reconnect, but it will be through activity. So that proximity layer, that layer of having my feelings organized seems to get avoided. Um, and the focus is more done in, in relation to exploration. The, the kicker with that though, is that, that that kind of idea we talked about before, because I still have that anxiety about not having my caregiver on board, my exploration is now kind of limited. And we, we talk about in the, the lab where I am like that, that, you, that it's, like, it's like somebody removed you know, a battery out of the back of the child. They're just kind of toned down. And so the child's not able to go directly to the caregiver, but they are able to find this way through play and activity. And so this is called a, a deactivating or distracting attachment strategy. So I deactivate my need for closeness and proximity and act like it's all about play and, and seeing the world. But I'm actually using that now to be close. Does that make sense? Yes, absolutely. The ambivalent kind of child um, is, is then the, the kind of classic, uh, you know, kind of image we have for this is the caregiver comes back in and the child fusses and cries, is picked up, but then sort of pushes to, to get down before they're fully settled. And so when the caregiver puts them down, they act like they're about to explore. And then they realize, actually, I still don't feel great. And so then they'll cling or stay close to the, to the parent again. And what they've learned is that, you know, like kind of the opposite of the avoidant child, that, that if I hyperactivate, if I turn up the volume, then I can keep you involved and I can keep this sense of availability. And so again, it takes a while for full exploration to, to, to return in that kind of relationship. And in fact, for some of these, some of the kids who are ambivalent, it, it doesn't really happen at all. They, they, once they're kind of you know, uncertain about caregiver availability, they, they continue to signal, hey, I need you to soothe me or, or, or kind of stay, stay close to me. Some research done back in the kind of early 90s, late 80s, looked at the psychophysiology of this in, in children. And this is always very interesting. And it was in fact, this uh, a kind of um, a monograph um, kind of uh, written by Jude Cassidy in 94 that I read when I was um, at, the, at, the, at the Child Protect Child Abuse Agency uh, that really kind of, uh, you know, kind of really, you know, we probably read probably half a dozen things in our career that we sort of really sit us back on, on our heels and we go, oh. <laughs> um, and, you know, I, I was reading this particular chapter and she was talking about the psychophysiology of, um, of the children in the strange situation. And so secure children, their cortisol goes up and their heart rate goes up. But when the caregiver returns, their heart rate drops very, very quickly. They're soothed by the presence of the caregiver. Um, and after the strange situation, they very rapidly, in terms of cortisol and heart rate, return to baseline. Um, so the, the presence of the caregiver is regulating, is, is what we would say. 
Ambivalent children, their, their heart rate starts to go down in the presence of the caregiver, but before it's fully kind of regulated, they signal that they want to be separate from the caregiver, which is that push away kind of response. So when the parent puts them down, the child gets down and then goes, oh, I'm still dysregulated. And so they turn back to the caregiver. And so you get this, we, we call it like a push-pull sort of process going on. What was really interesting to me was that the avoidant children um, who were the least behaviorally distressed, so they're the kids who show the least behavioral sign that they've been upset by the parents' absence, had the highest physiology uh, in terms of that and took the longest to return to baseline after the strange situation ended in terms of their cortisol. And it was, it was kind of like this light bulb for me because a really common referral that we saw was people would come and go, my son is acting out. So families from domestic violence, uh, he's very aggressive, you know, um, and, you know, and we would do the assessment. We'd say something like, and what about your daughter? How is she going? Fine. No problems. Like no behavioral issues at all. And I read this paper and was just like, oh, we need to take a look, closer look at these kids who don't have any behavior problems. And, and what we found when we, when we dug deeper was, in fact, these were the kids who were not learning at school. They were kind of basically sitting on all that arousal, going to school, regulating themselves rather than learning. Um, they were, you know, um, they were often anxious. Um, and so their lack of behavior problems was actually inhibition, not compliance or behaving well. Um, and so it, it that probably more than anything kind of gave me this feeling of legitimacy and attachment theory, that it was a way of kind of really understanding this, the sorts of experiences that children and families were having and a way of being more supportive and, and more responsive to, to those needs. In many ways, they're, they're kind of like the kids that fall through the cracks because they don't yeah. get noticed. Absolutely. Um, and I think this is one of the things with, with, when, when we have avoidance as a model of dealing with the world is because the, the kind of nature of the game with avoidance is not to share um, your emotional need. You go for long periods of time with, with, without kind of addressing that until you kind of drop off a cliff. And so this is why I think sometimes we see very well-functioning adults in terms of their working life and, you know, um, and on the surface, you know, suddenly, you know, um, kind of just not be able to get out of bed one day or not be able to, to kind of meet the, meet the demands of life. And, and it's because they've been kind of holding all of this affect at bay. And after a while, you just can't do that anymore. And what would you say, and actually, b- b- before I talk about um, how we can reflect on that ourselves individually can you maybe talk about the social the circle of security work that 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 you do that obviously addresses those or identifies it gives um, structures in 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 how to approach these you know obviously for parents caregivers um you know loved yeah. ones for for their, their their children um little ones yeah absolutely now in a minute nesh is is it gonna be a problem if i share screen and kind of no, you, you should be able to. Uh, should be okay. able to. And those that are that are listening just through audio, uh, audio sorry, through um, uh, audio only, maybe you could just describe what you're sharing as well. And I'll tell them where to go and find it as well. So Perfect. I'll show you the, the circle security graphic in a moment because it's just the easiest way to, to kind of explain that. 
But just to talk a little bit about the origins of that. So Cirque Security was um, founded by three clinicians in Spokane, Washington, which I, I asked one of them, Bert, who's one of my good friends, um, what else is Spokane famous for? And apparently it's where Bing Crosby came from. Um, so, but Cirque Security and Bing Crosby, that's Spokane's claim to fame. <laughs> uh, and they... They were partnered up through. They they become connected to Jude Cassidy um, in in a way because they had they had decided that they really needed to learn about attachment as well. Um, they were three Masterson psychodynamic trained psychotherapists working in private practice, and um, particularly Bert had had been involved in training um, clinicians in the local community. So I think uh, Bert Powell, Kent Hoffman, and Glenn Cooper were, were those three guys. Uh, and Glenn Cooper had kind of made contact with Jude Cassidy and they, they, they still have a, a relationship with her some 30 odd years later. Um, uh, and she's been a really strong partner in, in the development of social security, which I think is really very important, like because of its strong basis in attachment science. She linked them to another attachment researcher, uh, Bob Marvin, who'd been a student of Mary Ainsworth. Um, and he, he, he was really, I guess, the science and research kind of background uh, of the original Cirque Security trial, which was done in the, in, in the late 90s. So the, how that came about was that they had been doing work with um, young parents within their, their local community. Many of the, the young mums that they were working with were teen mums, had been homeless, um, substance abuse histories, you know, uh, quite, quite disrupted um, folks. And they'd been doing work in their, in their local Head Start community. And um, really, because the question that they came to was, you know, when they discovered attachment or when they came across attachment theory was this stuff's great. It's got, it's really important information and knowledge. Why isn't anyone teaching it to parents? And so this is again, like in the nineties, um, attachment was not um, as, as perhaps preeminent in the clinical space as it is now, where most clinicians will at least know the basics of attachment and people talk about doing attachment informed therapy and all kinds of things. But back in the nineties, that, that was not the case at all. It was still predominantly a developmental psychology research paradigm, not a, not a, not a clinical paradigm as yet. So they were really wanting to teach caregivers uh, about attachment to help them, you know, be, be more uh, understanding and available to their, to their kids' needs. And a grant came through and the Head Start person said, this is what you guys are doing anyway with our families. We should put in for the funding. And, and so they did and, and they got that. Uh, and their, their original trial demonstrated that they were able to move children um, through, the, through the intervention they developed from disorganized attachment straight to secure, which surprised um, no one more than themselves because their, their expectation was that they would be able to help insecure kids become secure in their relationship with their caregivers and that disorganized kids, they were kind of batting for, you know, they'll, they'll get to be insecure. What, what they found, though, was that the disorganized kids kind of skipped the, the insecure category in, in many cases and, and became secure. Now, even though they didn't have a control group for that study, they took about, they, they reported data in uh, 2005, the articles published in Journal of Consulting and Clinical. Um, they had about 90 odd families go through that. They had no control group, but it really caught people's attention because within a 20-week intervention, they were able to demonstrate these significant shifts in, in attachment style uh, in, in parents and child relationships, which is, which is pretty, a pretty big deal. Um, and the, they, the models- Let me fucking jump in. 
you don't need a control at that point because we know it works whether it works with the control or without and, and parents that need support and assistance and guidance um, are going to benefit, benefit from it irrespective and so are obviously the children. So, But uh, that, that, that's unbelievable uh, you know, re- response with, with just 20 weeks. Yeah, well, it's interesting you say just twenty weeks because um, you know in in the in the couple of decades since you know one of the one of the kind of debates or, or issues is that twenty weeks now seems like a long intervention, um, and you know the 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 guys you know the three clinicians Kent Bert and Glenn were were masters in psychotherapists right and and you know, seeing people psychodynamically and so we're used to seeing people sometimes for years in in treatment for for issues and so when people were say started saying you know twenty weeks such a long time they were were like oh we, this for us this was brief therapy that like we were really seeing this as you know and in terms of attachment it, it is really quite quite brief treatment um the the kind of key things about the intervention uh first off that we that this we use the strange situation is filmed pre-intervention uh, uh and we do a what's called a state of mind interview a bit like the adult attachment interview um called a circle security interview with the parents as well to understand their own kind of way that they're seeing the child both during the strange situation in day-to-day life with the child and then kind of their ability to reflect and, and how they've organized some of their own childhood experience but the key thing is, is that strange situation. We take video from there um, and we work out what the what we call the linchpin struggle is. So, so where in relationship the, the parent and child have the greatest struggle um, around kind of uh, meeting the child's needs particularly. And then that video is used to try and show the caregiver that struggle during the course of the intervention. And the original intervention was small groups, so four to six parents coming together for that 20 weeks. But the key thing that really stood out to me about the intervention when I first encountered it was that each parent has what's called an individualized treatment plan. So even though it was done in a group delivery, um, each caregiver, you you have this individual model of where their struggle is, how they understand that struggle, how they defend themselves um, in the context of that struggle in terms of their own anxiety about relationship. And that's used to deliver individual video clips from each parent's strange situation to them in in a phased way. And the advantage of the group kind of approach was is that um, you know obviously you get to see your relationship with your child in a very direct way uh, but then other caregivers are learning by watching you as well and you get to watch other caregivers and, and reflect on, on that experience um, as, as well so that was the that was the original model and we can talk a, a little bit about you know how it's kind of changed and, and developed over the time in the in the last 20 20 odd years uh, around that but I will just very quickly um, Oh, you've disabled screen sharing. So, oh, let me see how I how I uh, do this screen share. Let's see. Voila! I think I've just fixed it up for you now. Hopefully, you should be able to share right. now. There we okay. go. So, um, look at that. That's not what I wanted to do. Let me just. Oh, so I'll. Um, if you can see in the side here, this is Kent. Glenn and Bert, they're the they're the you founders. Just click of on that. The, uh, there you go. Oh, there we so go. So these these are the these are the three founders um, of of the model, and I have to say I'm I'm incredibly indebted to these guys. Um, Kent was 
Kent did my original training in the, in the model back in 2006. Uh, and my supervision and training in the model has been with Bert Powell. And, and Glenn's also become a, a really good mate over the years as well. Um, and Bert and I still catch up regularly in, in terms of talk, you know, talking about this stuff. But, but probably most importantly was, or, or for, perhaps for our conversation today anyway, was that in around 2013 or so, they, they gave me consent to train our students in, in this model. And we've been doing that at, at QUT for, for, you know, since then, basically. And this ability to train, um, you know, graduates in, um, you know, an applied form of attachment therapy. Um, it's optional because it's, it's a long training. Um, so they tend to to do it in their in their mid-year break um, but that ability to kind of really show them how developmental science can be integrated into an applied intervention has been just such a gift such a really you know incredible thing to be able to do um, so the key the thing in the circle security if i scroll down to it um, is oh god i've done it again is is this graphic here that which is the the circle um, so we, this is how we often refer to it, which is the, the idea of the circle. This is an old version. Um, the, the guys probably would, you know, be a bit unimpressed that I'm showing you the old clip art version rather than the, the fancy new, um, you know, um, artist drawn one. Um, but in some ways I, 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 it's kind of like, like, you know, our own attachment histories. I grew up with this one. This is the one that I saw and did all my training around. So when I see the circle in my head, it's, it's, this is still the one that I see. <laughs> Um, the, the key thing about the circle is that it captures um, the, all the dimensions of attachment as Bowlby and Ainsworth kind of outlined them. Um, and Bert once said to me that when they were developing this, um, the, 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 the protocol for, for the families that they were working with, um, everything that was for psychoed had to pass the 16-year-old illiterate mum test. So it had to be, you know, really engaging, very easy to explain and, and very, you know, able to rapidly communicate things to, to people. And uh, Ken Hoffman at, at one point said to me, you know, that, that he felt like if, if nothing else ever came of the circles, this is probably in around 2010 or so, he said, if nothing else ever happens with the circle, um, that this graphic would be kind of the legacy that they'd leave because it's been so important and, and, and useful for explaining attachment to, to people. And, and I have found this to be true, that you know, audiences of all kind of stripes and, and natures, um, I can pop this up and explain all the complexity of attachment usually in 20, 30 minutes, which is just, just incredible, really. Um, so the, the idea here is that we have the top of the circle, which is the exploration system, as Bowlby talked about it. And you'll see here that the idea is that, that the child has a need all the way around the circle. And the caregiver's job is just to, in the first instance, is just to follow the need. So to support the child's exploration on the top of the circle. Um, and then while the child is exploring to, to watch over them, to have to be that sense of being an available presence, to help the child when needed, uh, enjoy with the child what they're, what they're engaging in and delighting in them, giving them this feeling that they're just special just for themselves, not because of what they're doing, just for, for them. Um, and then what Bulby 
pointed out is that no one can be on the top of the circle forever. Um, either something disruptive or frightening will happen that will kick you into proximity seeking, as, as Bowlby described it. Um, or, or we just kind of run out of gas, right? One of my, one of my um, co collaborating colleagues, one of the students I've trained over the years, you had the great example of like, it's like an iPad, you know, it doesn't matter how good it is, it runs out of charge eventually, and you've got to bring <laughs> it back and, and, and stick it into the, into the power. Uh, and that's like for kids, right? And for all of us, we all need to get recharged at some point through, through relationship. And so this is when the child returns on the bottom of the circle. Um, and we describe this as, you know, welcome my coming to you. Um, that's what the, the child needs from the caregiver. So the caregiver needs to be receptive, not just when I'm out there enjoying the world, but when I come back in for connection as well. And then on the bottom of the circle, you know, uh, if, if needed, I have this need for being protected comforted. Um, again, delight. It's important that when I want closeness and intimacy that I'm seen as special as well, not just when I'm performing or doing things out in the world. Uh, and then that I have, have this ability to have my feelings organized. And this to me is a really important one I probably spend the most time talking with folks about, which is that we, we forget that children are like apprentice people they they're, they don't they don't come with the knowledge of their nervous system how how emotion works they they need they need a, a learning experience and organize my feelings is quite different from a lot of perhaps like say cbt interventions with kids around emotion regulation because what we mean here is not that you teach me about my feelings but that by being with me and being present, we co-regulate together those feelings. And so I have a felt learning about my feelings that they're safe, that they can become organized and stable again, and that, that, you know, that they're not disruptive to relationship. Now, in the context of that, there's there's a lot of teaching that goes on. Parents will say things, "Oh, you're feeling sad, and you know, it's yep, you're upset because that kid took your ball or whatever." It is. So there's a lot of learning that goes around for sure, but it's the caregiver's responsive attention and presence that does the organizing of the feelings. If that makes sense. The third component here that relates to, to Bowlby and Ainsworth's theory is, is the hands, which provide a, a secure base and a safe haven for the, for the child. And in the little box down the bottom here, this is um, what the guys said, you know, if, um, in 25 words or less, what being a good enough parent is about. And that's always be bigger, stronger, wiser, and kind, which are considered to be the four primary attributes of, of the hands. And so that bigger and stronger is that we're clearly the adult in charge, that we have greater capacity than the child to manage the world, that we wiser, that we have knowledge and information and a sense of how to navigate relationship that, that the child feels safe with, and that we're kind. And that we, gen, you know, that we have a term, no nonsense tenderness, that we have that real kind of clear compassion, even if we're putting discipline or, or kind of managing behavior in place. So whenever possible, we want to follow the child's need. And for the first half of the circle security intervention, we basically just teach parents really how to decode their child uh, going all the way around the circle and how to identify where their child is on the circle, what they need, and what they might do to, to meet that need. Wherever necessary, the caregiver then takes charge. So if the child's doing something that's developmentally they're not able to, crossing the road at two, you know, that kind of stuff, that the caregiver will jump in and take charge of that. Uh, and sometimes it might be about managing behavior or the child's dysregulation as, as well. Um, any questions before I pull that, drop that down, Nash? No, look, it's, it's, I think it's a beautiful representation and, and, and there's such simplicity 
in here. And I suppose in, in that is why sometimes we uh, find it difficult to, to meet those because life gets in the way and life is not yeah. simple. And so it's very, very hard where you know, a, a family, you know, parents who are, you know, upholding, you know, all the different elements of, of maintaining a household and meeting all the children's needs and paying bills and going to work, doing pickups and drop-offs and preparing food mm. and cleaning is to, to be available, you know, is, is, is where it's tricky. And I suppose that that's where parents find it the hardest is when time sort of is pressured, uh, we find it much more difficult to, for example, meet a child's need and just, you know, my, I always talk about it and always think about it in terms of holding children, you know, and, and that, that probably comes with those open hands is that, you know, when, when my daughters, you know, cry, you know, all I really need to do is, is, is just pick them up, hold them, um, and I yeah. just wait. All I need to do is just do that and just wait until they start to wriggle and, and, and let me know that it's time for them to leave, you know, that they are feeling yeah. comfortable and, and, and off they go. And maybe a bit of a chat to, to just talk about, you know, why you're feeling this way, what's going on and what's happened. Um, yeah. You know, and yeah. half the time they don't need the um, logical explanation uh, because that will come later and their prefrontal cortex is probably not developed enough to, to understand all that, but they certainly understand what a hug, you know, that, that, that touch, that physical affection and, 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 you know, security feels like, and then, you know, off yeah. they go again to, you know, for their next battle with their sibling or whatever it might be. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. Um, if I can use that as a, as a bit of an example, Nesh, because it's, it's, it's exactly kind of what, what we're kind of um, you know, on about with the circle security, which is the idea of that, that regulation occurs in relationship um, and that relationships that are more able to regulate our experience in, in the broadest possible sense are, are the ones that we would consider secure. Um, and so your ability to give that holding um, sounds predicated on the fact that you're comfortable with your child's feelings. Um, and they're not frightening to you, so you're able to, to, to pick up your daughters and, and give them, them what they need. And so a big component of the circle is this idea of shark music. Uh, and shark music is the idea that for some caregivers, because of their history, when their child comes with a feeling just like you described with your daughters, um, that feeling creates an anxiety because they, it's, it's either they, in their own history, that feeling wasn't well responded to or met, or maybe no feelings in the case of you know, adults with disorganizing experiences were, were well regulated. And so when their child comes with that need, it creates an anxiety within the caregiver. And so this is, this is what then underpins why caregivers might do things like trying to distract their child from their feeling or, you know, you know perhaps disciplining them, you know, giving them a time out for, for being too emotional or being upset. And it's because the caregiver doesn't want their, you know, to give their child a negative experience, but their own anxiety and a lack of awareness about how to meet the child's need uh, kind of comes in and interfe interferes the smooth, with the smooth regulation of things. And so in the circle, the second half of the intervention is trying to give parents insight into um, what that shark music is how it interferes with all of our parenting at some level or another, like we've all got a bit of shark music from, you know, from, from life um, and how that then can turn up in relationship and, and how we might, after we've learned how to track our child and see their needs, 
how we might track where, where we have the greatest discomfort in attachment relationships. And again, we, we don't try and cure shark music in the course of this intervention. It's too brief for that. But what we do try and help parents to, to think about is this idea of choosing security, that even though we hear our shark music, we can still turn towards our kids and meet their needs. Um, and if we can do that, then our child will get what they need. And at the very least, we won't be handing on that struggle into the next generation. And what are some of the ways that, that you teach parents to do that is in, in, in part of the, 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 the program? Is that modelled? Do, do you provide examples? Yeah. Is that something that um, is, is uh, uh, shown videos as part of the program? How does, yeah. that, how does that kind of come about? Because it's, it's quite complex. I mean, there's, there's, there's lots of different scenarios and, 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 and contextual sort of features. And uh, I can imagine with, with, you know, four plus sets of parents in a, in a, in a room, they've, they've got different understandings of what, um, yeah. what that all looks like. You know, that, that misinformation, I think you elegantly said it so, so beautifully is, is that, um, you know, once we have a template, it, it, it can, um, misinform us you know uh, mm. quite quite often and, and give us a very different interpretation of what the world looks like yeah absolutely um so there's a number of ways we we kind of do this and i'll try and um explain it in in, a, in as short and a simpler way as i can um video is a big component right um and we couldn't do the intervention without video um, these days at, at QT, where, where I run the, the intervention with, with, with the graduate students, um, we do primarily individual. We might, might get to talk about why we've shifted from group to individual o over the years with, with the model and that the fact that there are now two kind of forms of circuit security. There's a cause parenting and then the circuit security intensive, which is the, the original, which, which I guess I'm pr primarily involved with. So um, the kind of first layer or the first thing is, is psychoeducation. Um, like, like all good programs, we've got to kind of, you know, give some new information. But, um, and I've, I've, I've spent quite a long time trying to think about how to explain this when I was training the circle security stuff, um, like how psychoed is, 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 is quite different in, in the circle. Because one thing, uh, as, as a psychologist, trained as a psychologist, it was like psychoed was something that you taught people. And so you became this teacher and you stood up in front of like the groups. Um, you know, I worked for a while in a forensic hospital, you know, and you kind of did like symptom education to people with psychosis and you kind of stood up and did the, the speech. And, and the, the circle is not like that in terms of the psychoed. And I, I looked for, for a good metaphor for this for years. And then my son gave me one when he went to, to childcare, which he fair to say despised he did not enjoy um center-based <laughs> child care he'd had a beautiful um experience of family daycare and then we moved back to, to brisbane here and uh and he did not enjoy center-based care but the one thing that he did enjoy was um what they called show and share he he liked to take something in and show it to people and kind of explain it it was the one time where he would kind of really be keen to go and kind of you know and, and do this and i thought this is, this is what the psychoedema circle is really like. It's, it's show and share. I really take something to the caregiver and go, here's something I, I think I know about relationship. And I think it's pretty cool. 
how about we, we kind of look at it together? And so the, the education really follows that. We, it's, it's a very much a, a conversation and a dialogue with the parents about concepts from attachment theory. And so we have a number of handouts. A lot of them are visual, like the circle. We use imagery um, around that. A lot of stories. Um, you know, um, one of the, the big theories of, around attachment, of course, is that, the, that it's a, like a script. So that there's, a, there's a narrative of, of, about relationship that, that we have. And so we use a lot of story kind of based sort of ideas ideas and metaphors for, for communicating concepts. And that's, if you like, the, the sort of verbal reflective layer. We also use a lot of video, and particularly now when we do it individually, because they don't see each other like they, like they would in a group. So we use video from, there's the Circle Security Parenting has a, has a, 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 a it's a video-based um, version of the program. So we use material from that, but also clips from, um, you know, that we find on YouTube about some of the developmental science stuff. So still face experiments, the visual cliff experiment, all of these things that, that get parents particularly you know, engaged with the concepts. Um, so that's that's the, that's one layer that we that we certainly kind of look at showing this. The second layer is, and and this is perhaps the most important, is the video review from the strange situation. So we have um, three phases of, of of showing video. So phase one, our focus is really on showing that children don't always clearly show their needs, and so as a caregiver, it's sometimes easy to miss what our kids need because they they miscue us. They act in a way that kind of obscures their need. And so we, we have a sequenced way of looking for clips in the strange situation. And again, a sequenced way of showing the caregiver um, th that, that kind of learning, if you like. So phase one, we typically show four clips that, that kind of show the caregiver. We, we want to reduce the caregiver's anxiety about the whole experience, like watching yourself on video is never awesome, right? For, particularly for, for people who don't hang out in training programs and labs like we do. Um, so we, we have a clip that's, that's sort of like a softening, we call it a softening clip, where we basically show the parent and the child in, in some sense in, in positive relationship. But the key thing we want to show there is that, that the child needs the parent, that the parent is the most important person for the, for the kiddo in, in that moment. Then we want to show a moment where the, the, that area of struggle that we talked about earlier is we call it the linchpin struggle. So the area that if we got it to change in the relationship, it would make the biggest difference. Um, so we show what we call an underutilized capacity clip. So this is a clip where the caregiver is doing something that looks like it's meeting the need of the child in that area where they struggle. And then we show uh, what we call a shark music minor clip, which is where we show the child in that area of struggle, but miscuing. So acting like they, they have a different need. So if, they, if the struggle was on the bottom of the circle, you know, and as we talked about with avoidant kids, they might be showing a toy. Well, that's a miscue at, at reunion because the child is on the, on the bottom of the circle. And then lastly, we want to show a clip, which we call a, like a resolution or celebration clip, which basically shows that the, relate, the foundation of the relationship is pretty solid. Because obviously we want the caregiver to leave that review feeling optimistic and hopeful uh, about their about their connection. So a lot of the training and a lot of the the kind of you know the work and, and the thinking goes into using that individualized treatment plan with the caregiver to select well tailored clips to to illustrate that these relationship kind of capacities. It's fantastic. I know that uh, one of my placements. Uh, when I was going through my training was with uh, care and protection here in the ACT and 
I can't remember her her name, the lady that was uh, coordinating it. She put myself and another one of my colleagues into a room with a video on and it was it was a movie called or a documentary called Faces in the Mob. I'm oh. not sure if you are familiar with that. No, mate, no. But uh, it was basically, uh, I think it was only maybe 45 minutes or so of a documentary on kangaroos. And right. they showed. Oh, I a, think I've heard of this. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, they, 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 they showed a mother that was, you know, highly attentive to their um, Joey's needs and so much of, a, of it was around tracking, you know, watching the Joey walking away and then might make a bit of a noise to say, hey, you know, come back here, you're going a little bit too far or allowing the Joey to go that little bit further before Joey sort of turns around and sees that mum's, you know, uh, gone a little bit too far and might sort of jump back. And But there's that elegant sort of balance versus maybe a mother that was less, in, you know, attentive and, you know, the Joey would stray and, she, uh, you know, was too busy um, uh, doing her own thing, um, uh, and it was it was fascinating the this really elegant way of demonstrating when needs are met, you know, all the way to when the Joey needs to jump back in the pouch, you know, mm. whether the mother sort of crouches down or helps with you know pulling the Joey up, mm. unless the sort of less attentive um, mother uh, was kind of disinterested in in whether the Joey could get in or not, you know, they had to be yeah. highly independent and, and uh, at the very, very sort of end, uh, they, they showed a clip where um, danger uh, showed up and, and how each, each of the, um, you know, two different relationships responded. And mm. to see that uh, visually and, and the way it was sort of put together, it was very elegant. I have looked for that, 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 that video clip for a long time and I cannot find it because it's something wow. that was so uh, like what you said, you know, you read, you read, you know, half a dozen or so things and, and they stand out and this was definitely one for mm. me. And I, I just remember it was called faces in the mob, but I cannot find it. So oh. if there's anyone oh, out there who, who, who does know where, where that is, please contact me and let me know. I'd love to be able to get a copy. Yeah. It's fantastic. It's fantastic stuff. And if you find it, let me know, because that would be just, that would be great. Because, I mean, this is obviously one of the things that Bowlby said was that attachment was mammalian, that it was, it was you know, it was part of the, the mammal system of how we care for young. And, and so he saw this continuity through animals. And he was very interested by, influenced by Harry Harlow's work with, of course, the monkeys. Yes. Um, you know, so, you know, he, he saw this thread through, through, through the kind of, you know, evolutionary chain, as it were. And maybe also seeing it through animals is less confronting, right? We we kind of look at them and 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 uh, we're more able to see our our um you know our own personal challenges through them without it being pointed yeah. you know, out directly. So I, th- I think there's some elegance in in I suppose storytelling, but in a non-threatening way. So definitely, if I do find it, I'll I'll uh, I'll uh, flick it through to you and let you know because I think um, hopefully you know it would impress others you know, uh, mm. of, of that sort of knowledge and idea as, as much as it did. Yeah, 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 absolutely. Um, so, I, I, so that I think I have, have I answered your question that you had before about you know how we show this. Yeah. We, obviously, the video review is a big one. The the psychoed. 
and then we the the primary um, so it's two there's to me two kind of real foundations to the circuit security intensive intervention. One of those is this concept of being with, which is being present with people when they're in vulnerability. Um, so as we said before, being with is kind of when the child comes in on the bottom of the circle um, is, is critical there, that the, the parent is able to be with the child in, in their feelings. It's also important that they're able to be with the child when the child's exploring as, as well. Um, so, But the foundational kind of attitude that we take as an intervener in the circuit security is that we are with the parent as they kind of learn about themselves and their relationship with their child. Um, and then the, the primary strategy, if you like, is, is this idea we call reflective dialogue, that we engage in a particular kind of conversation that's attentive to mental states and psychological states, particularly those related to emotions. And as the program progresses, these become increasingly um, focused around areas that where, where there's that struggle, that, that anxiety in the caregiver's relationship with the child. And so we're always looking to kind of engage um, in a particular type of conversation that encourages the parent to look at things in a new way, but also to kind of onboard those psychological states, both within themselves and within their child into their understanding of relationship. If I, if I just switch gears a little bit, mm. uh, are you aware of any uh, good material or programs or, or books that are available for adults um, who aren't in the uh, parent um, giving uh, sort of situation, but rather reflect on their own adult relationships where they see yeah. some of these traits um, yeah, as, as, as adults, as, as you know, um, those that feel have been affected by um, their upbringing, you know, maybe they, they, they recognize some insecure or avoidant attachment, maybe some dis, di, 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 disorganized traits. You know, what, what can we do as, as adults where we're not in a, you know, parent giving capacity, but we're, we're, we're still walking around on this earth and, and bumping into yeah. people and we're still looking for attachment with, with adults too. Um, Cause there's obviously those yeah. mis representations occurring all the time. Um, is there any literature out there or any good resources that um, might be a good starting place for, for some listeners? I'd love to be able to kind of point to a really circle security consistent one that we, that I could, could, could kind of direct you to. Uh, but it's, it's not, there, there isn't one, right. Cause the focus has been on parents, but yes. uh, in that, in there that they, the, the guys have written a book called raising a secure child, which is for, for caregivers and based around the, 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 the circle approach. Um, and in there are, are certainly some chapters about how our own, um, you know, experience affects how we how we might feel about the emotions of of others around us, including our children. But a book that I've kind of come across recently, which is probably you know pretty consistent with the the, the approach and, and attachment, um, and particularly this idea of how we protect ourselves from emotions that we've learned are, are uncomfortable or likely to be disruptive, um, is a book. I'm not going to be able to remember the woman's name. Um, um, so apologies to her for that. But the book is called It's Not Always Depression. Um, and, and she introduces um, this idea of the, the conflict triangle or the conflict um, circuit, um, which we, we in the circuit, we just call it the triad. But it goes, I, I spent a bit of time digging in. And as far as I can tell, this was, you know, started back in the manager clinic somewhere, you know, in the middle of last century. And it's basically this idea that... Um, 
when we um, self-activate, um, which is the way we think of it, like, but, but basically when I have a need that, I, that kind of pushes me to, to take some action in the world, if that need has been um, associated with relationship disruption in my childhood, so all that stuff we talked about early in the conversation, then I will feel some anxiety or threat uh, about taking that action. And the, the likelihood, if I've not learned how to hold that anxiety and respond to it differently, is that I will then do something in, in defense, right? Um, and, and so, and the, the, the way the, that kind of triangle gets patterned, if we like, we might think of as the, as different forms of personality disruption or character disorder, or just life, right? We all have our kind of own little triangle with this. Um, so the, the, the person who wrote that book, um, you know, it's not always depression. Uh, she does a really good job of unpacking that, that kind of triangle in a, in, I guess, a self-help sort of context in, in her practice. And she had been trained, um, I think both psychodynamically, but, but she came to it through the work of, um, uh, Diana Fosher, I think is, is her name who did the accelerated experiential dynamic therapy, which is a bit of a mouthful to say. But, um, but this, this triangle idea turns up in all the short-term dynamic models, um, the, the, certainly in the Masterson model, um, which, which the guys brought into the circle security work. Uh, and it's this idea that, that you know, we encounter these places where we didn't get optimal caregiving that raises anxiety, and then we do something self-protective. And the repetition of that is what kind of kind of disrupts us. So, if I give you a simple example, you know, like like a, like a garden variety everyday example. Um, if if like a lot of the Western population were a little bit avoidant, we might come home from work and a stressful day, you know, and we're feeling like I mean, we really need to reach out and make contact with our spouse, um, you know, because that's the human kind of instinct. We never stop wanting to turn to relationship when we're struggling. But in our history, you know, in our, like with our caregiver, whenever we were too intense or too much, we were rebuffed. And so we've learned that reaching out and making connection um, is, is a problem and just kind of sharing our needs. So we might come in and instead of saying, you know, I've had the, the worst day, like it's just been a shocker and, you know, and I just, I just don't feel like, you know, um, you know, I just want to kind of just chill out and just sit and have a yarn uh, and tell you how awful it's been. Instead of doing that, we might come in and go, oh, I had a big meeting today. And so our defense is to kind of like, again, like the child showing the toy is to kind of play it a bit cool. And if our partner goes, oh, how big? Was it okay? We might be able to relax and then go into, no, it wasn't okay. It was pretty rough. But if our partner goes, yeah, I had a big day too, we might go, see, again, people aren't super interested in what's going on for me. And so then we go, well, tell me about your day. And we take all that and we put it in the background again. Does that sort of... It's beautiful, isn't it? I mean, that, that's what's so elegant that these nuances are so uh, easily um, dismissed or, or actually it's not even dismissed, it's not seen. You know that they are glanced yeah. over, that they they're invisible to us, and and to really try and understand that, um, uh, mm. makes such a big difference because uh, that person who who says oh, I went into a you know meeting today, they don't even understand that they're being avoided. They, they yeah. are just communicating their needs in their best possible way, 
Um, Absolutely. Their partner's yeah. responding in, in you know, a, a very reasonable way also in, in trying to gift an opportunity of, of mm-hmm. saying, you know, what happened. But, yeah. uh, you know, there's a dynamic where they loosen up, but, you know, as you say, maybe it takes a while for that cortisol to go down and for the heart rate to go down. So they only offer a little bit. Mm. And in the meantime, someone who's a little bit maybe, say, more secure, for example, they might offer what's happened for them earlier yeah. uh, and, and, and reach right. for connection themselves. And, and you know, the, the, the original person kind of says, oh, that's okay. Well, you know, that works in line with me. But maybe there's a bit of resentment that's built over time as, as well. So there's that's all these right. beautiful, elegant things that are going on when, when, when we don't look out for it. We, we just think it's normal, which it is. It's our mm-hmm. normal sort of way. But, you know, what we're kind of saying is maybe we need to examine, um, examine this a wow. little bit further and understand, uh, you know, some of the potential uh, background workings. Um, yeah. I know that sometimes we talk about it in, 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 in a way of having like an inner child, um, mm. you know, I know that, you know, psychology likes to, 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 to look at it maybe from a more schema sort of a, a world, a little bit of, of, of talking about, you know, the vulnerable child or, mm. um, you know, the, the, the many sort of languages that we can put, put to it, but we're trying to, in some sense, recognize the child inside us and soothe, yeah. support, nurture, be kind, you know, maybe be, be, be kind and wise with that, with that um, inner part that hasn't, hasn't been met yet. Yeah. And I think this is, uh, this particularly I think is part of like, you know, uh, the, the stuff that I'm interested in these days is I think um, looking across all sorts of theories, um, the, the, there's, everybody has their own language for this. But as as a you know um, as an applied developmentalist, my my kind of sense is is that there, it's just one process. We have all these ways of describing it and explaining it, but it's a human process that it's that's at the core of how we relate. And I you know I have conversations with people who are CBT and their orientation or psychodynamic or whatever, and I can I can always have a conversation with them about this stuff and they get it. Um, and as long as we don't let language get in the way, right? I kind of think I'm multilingual in terms of theories. Because it, what I find is people are talking about the same stuff and yeah. we often get into debates about the language of things rather than, well, what's the concept, right? What are we actually getting to? And the concept is pretty common. I think that's, it's a beautiful way to look at it because it's the process, you know, and, and it, you know, if we use a language like, you know, meeting someone's needs, mm. it doesn't matter what, what theory you come from, you know, CBT, ACT, schema, interpersonal therapy, you name it. They're all just, uh, you know, different ways of, of trying to have, I suppose, have framework of how to understand a human being. But mm. Thankfully, we, we continue to understand the human beings in the same way that they have needs that, you know, uh, need to be met. And uh, yeah. when they are met, um, you know, we, we, we tend to function a lot better and be able to reciprocate those needs with, with others as well. And when we don't, we feel under threat or pressure, uh, under mm. stress, and it's very difficult, difficult for us to meet other people's needs or even see that other needs need to be met when we're under assault ourselves. Yeah. And of course, if we, you know, and this is one of the core things about that triad idea is that if I feel under, under threat, then of course I'm going to defend. I'm going to protect myself. And if we go back to that idea of that secure children kind of learn that, that good follows bad, 
that expectation that if, if things are a bit tense, that we will repair it keeps me in the game, keeps yes. me working in relationship. And so ultimately things have got a higher probability that they'll work out, that we'll get reconnected if there's been a miss in, in our communication. But if I have to protect myself and because I don't necessarily feel confident that good will follow bad, this is where we get this kind of downstream consequences. If, if I protect myself, like you said, like if I pull back, some resentment might build up. And then later on in the night, I might go, well, why, why don't you ever kind of, you know, you know, clean up after yourself after, after dinner or whatever? Because, you know, that, that feeling is there, but I haven't been able to give voice to it. So it comes out in some, some other form, some other place. Absolutely fantastic. Fantastic work. Joe, where, where can people go to to find out more? How can people find out more about, you know, your work, um, reach out if, 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 if they like? Um, yeah. Sure. About how to get into, you know, for, for, for students, how to get into your, your program, you know, because I, I think this is such important, um, you know, work to, to get a good foundational understanding, particularly early on in, in uh, you know, psychologist careers as well. Yeah. So for all things Circle Security, the, the absolute best place to go is um, Circle Security International. Um, and on their website, all of the, the trainings and the different forms of the model and all the resources. For parents, there's a beautiful section, which is just labeled for parents. Um, and it has a whole bunch of lovely animations that explain the circle concepts really simply and clearly. Um, so that that's absolutely the best place to go and you know, get the updated circle as well <laughs> there. Um, for, for me, I, I don't have anything like a social media presence. I've avoided that all my life and career um, and hopefully we'll continue to do so. Uh, but I, <laughs> but I, am a, I, I am a pretty good email correspondent. So if people want to email me at joseph.coin, C-O-Y-N-E at qut.edu.au, um, I'm happy to, to kind of talk and speak about the circle stuff, you know, um, in general. Um, once COVID frees up, you know, the world a little bit more, um, we will be running trainings again, open to professionals. Um, so I run um, re relatively once or twice a year. We used to, again, pre-COVID, uh, we run a, a training in the Circle Security Intensive Method. Um, and there are regular trainings in COSP, which is the more psychoeducational form of the, of the intervention. But Circle Security International is the place to go and get all dates and things in, in regard to that. Fantastic, fantastic. And before we uh, finish up, are you aware of any any uh, you know attachment based programs that that have been put forward to government in terms of policy and the way that we we organise yeah. society as well? That that kind of speaks to some of this research and, and great data that that you know our ministers are looking at and kind of said, hey, you know the, the this is kind of useful. Yeah. Where where is this going? You know, rather than just our our own therapy and our own our, our own you know psychologists doing doing yeah. their thing. Where where do you see this um, has has impacted? I, I hope I hope this conversation's getting um, kind of more traction. Um, and I know places like the Australian Childhood Foundation with their work around trauma informed work. Uh, QT, we have a woman called Judith Howard, um, who's been looking, uh, has been a, a long-standing project at trauma-informed schooling. So looking at how attachment processes and things um, relate to understanding how kids behave at school. Uh, the Circle Security now has the Circle Security in Schools program as well, which is basically taking this and helping teachers think about 
kids' needs through this lens. Um, partly uh, back when I was uh, first came across the, the circle, I was working in Queensland Health. And so uh, it's with the, the circle security is within the Queensland Health model of care. So here in our state department, uh, like you can get COSP, for example, uh, for free um, at all of the child health centres in Queens through, through Queensland Health. Uh, and many of the social workers and psychs who work in that child health program have some level of more advanced training uh, and so can work with parents with more significant issues kind of one-on-one. -on -one. Um, more recently, I'm, but my kind of other hat that I, I can wear is I'm involved in the Australian Infant Mental Health Association. I'm the state chair for, for that uh, and on the national board. Um, and recently, one of my colleagues, Susie Lewis, um, at, at an agency called the Chorus, they, they've got a trial um, with the local child safety looking at the ABC model, which is Mary Dozier's program, uh, Attachment and Biobehavior behavioral catch-up, which is another very reflective video-driven um, program. So that's scanning some traction both here and in South Australia. Um, there's been some, I think, early work around VIP, which is a program from, from Europe, which is video interactive parent something. I um, can't remember the, the anagram for that, but that's the work of um, Femi Hoofer from, from Holland. Um, I think worked closely with Marius van Isendorn. So there are a few of these programs around and I think there's more of a dialogue going. We've unfortunately, or depending how you look at it, because I think it has done some good things, but we've, we've been living in, in a very behavioral world in terms of the parenting support space. Um, and, you know, um, I've got, there's a paper of people who are looking published in 2013 in the Australian Psychologist, um, where I kind of have a bit of a, a, a discussion about, you know, what, why I think, you know, uh, attachment and behavioral parenting are kind of two different paradigms and perhaps the advantage of moving to a more, more attachment way of looking at the world. Um, but I think one of the things, as, as a pediatrician colleague pointed out to me at a talk I did once, that there's an opportunity cost to that, that the way governments work is it's kind of a marketplace. So if you have one kind of brand filling up the space, it's very difficult to get other kind of, not just other programs in place. I think ultimately we need to move away from programs and more to just, just having a more relationally oriented view of the world. Um, and I think having that debate and that dialogue get into the space is really what we, what we need to see more of. Absolutely fantastic, and it's great to know that you're part of that dialogue, voicing voice in that uh, you know position. Because I, I, I'm in great agreement with that. I think programs uh, are, are great, and once again, it's a problem with language. It's a problem with 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 you know categories rather than there's a process here that that really needs to yep. be understood. You know, it's almost like a culture, you know, a culture of of you know uh, uh, making our children's voices heard and and trying to learn what they what those you know feelings are uh, it's kind of like a, i remember my, my my um one of my daughters wasn't sleeping very well and and uh we went to this incredible incredible um uh, a facility called qe2 here for for uh oh, good. putting putting uh having nursing staff assist us in 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 learning about our children how to how to um soothe them and and uh Really, they were just teaching us how to listen out for our children. Are they crying? Are they under distress? Are they just kind of um, uh, uh, having, you know, voicing their, their discontent with, with uh, not wanting to go to bed, but in actual fact, needing that rest and, you know, us mm. being feeling secure because we had someone who's professional and could guide us. Yeah. Made all yeah. the sense. And, you know, two, three days later, um, you know, chalk and cheese. We we had that confidence. We knew what they would, what what they were asking mm. us to do, and it made sense that we weren't harming our child. And 
and off we go. Uh, and so to, to have that language available is, is fantastic. And uh, yeah. it's great to have, have you on board uh, to, to, to um, you know, voice that on, on behalf of, um, well, on behalf of society, um, you know, someone who's informed and you know, really appreciate you uh, taking the time and, and coming on the show today to, to have that conversation here as well. No worries. And look, thank you for the opportunity, Nash. It's been great. Thanks, Joe. Take care. If you enjoyed this podcast, please support it by going to iTunes and putting a review. Subscribe, share it via social media, and tell others about it. Start a conversation. It's listeners like you that make this able and possible and why we bring in these guests to go out and share their knowledge and resources. And just lastly, if you are a psychologist and you want to go out and be part of a bigger team, develop your experience and get into some exciting work, come to strategicpsychology.com.au forward slash careers and reach out. I'd love to hear from you.